You're listening to an audiobook presentation of The Grendel's Shadow by Andrew Maine. You can purchase it for 99 cents on Amazon, on their Kindle store, on your Kindle, or on all major phones using the Kindle app, including iPhones, Androids, Blackberries, and Windows 7. It's also available on the Nook store and Apple's iBooks. Or you can buy this entire audio presentation uninterrupted or a physical copy at andrewmaincom books. Chapter 8 They walked back up the hill to where the buildings were slightly less grimy. Westwood steered them towards the pier and awaited the steamboat. Feeling a little chastened by the friendliness of the folks they just met, Alan spoke up. Nice people. Yep. The ones that never go into town you gotta worry about. So we're looking for a carrion-eating parrot cat that prefers herbivores? Not necessarily. I haven't seen an actual trek yet or anything of what's left of the bodies. We don't want to get too invested in our assumptions. There could be a mega brush cat out there just following after something else. Like a brush bird? asked Alan. Or a human. Alan stopped walking and almost bumped into a boy on a bicycle carrying an impossible number of parcels. A man murdered those people? Or woman, or none of the above. I doubt it. I don't think too linearly, Alan. We have no idea what's out there. So far, we haven't seen any physical evidence. Just diagrams and accounts from people after the fact. The worst thing we can do is go out there expecting something to fall within the frame we've created and get blindsided by the unexpected. Whatever this creature is, killing humans or carrying them off isn't its normal behavior. Was it just the presence of people here that caused it? Or something else? What about the vegetarian angle? Probably nothing. This thing feeds off the grass eaters, then it's not too surprising that human grass eaters might be straying into the wrong territory. Less likely, but plausible, is that it can tell the difference between an herbivore and an omnivore by scent and is being professionally courteous. Personally, I think it's hogwash, and our meat-eating trapper friends just hope that's the case. Westwood switched his pack to his other shoulder. I don't know if you noticed this, but when Miss Dion was telling her story, Ash's leg began to tremble a bit. Alan had noticed it, too. You think he saw something but just doesn't want to spook her too much? Westwood shrugged. It's a man's job to decide which of a woman's fictions to maintain. Alan couldn't remember who said that, but it still rang true. He was about to press Westwood on Ash's reaction, but then he thought better of it, remembering Westwood's own past on the frontier with his wife. He wanted to know more, but now was not the time. When they reached the pier, Mr. Smythe was in the middle of mediating an argument between the steamboat captain and a deckhand. Westwood and Allen held back until it was settled. The boat was sixty feet long, with a shallow draft and just one level. It looked used, but well-kept. Allen knew nothing about steamboats. It looked safe enough, though. Finally, Smythe walked over to explain the situation to Westwood and Allen. It seems that one of our crew members has jumped ship. The others are uneasy about going to Grassy Bend. Don't worry, it's all settled now. I told them they could turn the boat around as soon as we got there, and they'd never have to set foot on shore. He gestured to the boat. Everything you asked for is here. Is there anything else? Westwood pulled a folded-up sheet of paper from his journal. Could you telegraph this diagram and instructions to a machinist at Grassy Bend? Smythe looked at the diagram. Sure, sure. You think you'll be needing this? It's rather large. I hope not. 
but I don't want to be out there and find out whether we need it in a worst-case scenario. He tapped his large hunting rifle. This will take down a T-Rex if aimed at the right spot. Trouble is knowing the right spot. Alan caught a glance at the diagram over Smythe's shoulder. To the untrained eye, it resembled a cannon. Westwood certainly put on a calm face, but it looked like he was ready to go take on Napoleon's navy. One more thing. Smythe pulled a rolled-up document from his leather case and handed it to Westwood. Here's the license you requested. Every member of the assembly signed it. I assure you this wasn't necessary. We'll be quite glad to have you rid us of this terror. Westwood looked it over, folded it up, and placed it into his pack. I've heard that before, only to find out that not everybody was on the same page. Just so as long as we're clear. If I had a chance to trap it, or make certain that it wouldn't kill again, I'm inclined to take that option. I'm a biologist, not a hired gun. Smythe's face was expressionless. Dr. Westwood, all I care about right now is getting my son back. You can make the thing your pet on the floor, Matt, for all I care. There's another matter. It may seem indelicate, but I need to know. Does he or anybody else have iDNA? I need to know what to do with the remains. There was a wrinkle Alan hadn't thought about. While most covenant worlds forbade any kind of advanced technology or significantly advanced genetic life forms, they tended to ignore iDNA, a genetic modification that most first-worlders like himself carried that made backups of their complete brain pattern in case of severe body trauma. It wasn't helpful if your body was too badly damaged or simply lost. For that, you needed a full backup like the one he made before he left. Smythe's eyes got moist. No. My wife and I had that sequence removed before we came here. We were idealistic, I guess. She was religious, and I never thought anything like this would happen. Westwood clasped him on the shoulder. I'll do what I can. Smythe went off to telegraph the diagram up ahead. Westwood and Allen got settled into their bunks. It's a shame, said Allen. I agree. Westwood tucked his rifle under a mattress. I can understand the impracticality of a memory backup on a world like this. It's not like they can grow a synthetic body for you here, but with iDNA, you can at least send it off world. That's what they want. I mean, who has iDNA removed? He asked rhetorically. I did. Alan opened his mouth to ask why and then, thought better of it, shut it. It was a personal question and the answer he suspected could be traced back to the point when the celebrated biologist became an even more celebrated hunter. Chapter 9 It was a three-day journey by river. Grassy Bend was located off a fork that jogged between the hills of the north side up to the uplands, a region of dense trunk vine growth. Most settlements were located in the flat plains of the south side and the downland region. Both sides of the river were lined with thick trunk vines that the plant was known for. The vines snaked in and out of the water, and in some places formed giant arch-like bridges across the river that animals used to cross from one side to the next. Under one arch, they passed a flock of medium-sized brushbirds that all craned their necks and sink as they passed under. Alan was convinced they were staring right at him. A deckhand told him it wasn't unheard of for a brushbird to lean down and pluck an unsuspecting passenger right out of a passing boat. Kidding or not, this made him consider the merits of tying an anchor around his waist as opposed to a life preserver. Westwood used the opportunity to scan the shoreline and sky with a field glass and occasionally made notes and played with his chemistry kit. 
Alan was fascinated by how Westwood could find significance in places that seemed to have no significance whatsoever. When they passed a bend where the water spilled out into a round elbow, Westwood made a note. Alan asked why. Westwood pointed with his pen. Look at the roots of the tree by the water's edge. What do you see? They look just like roots to Alan. He said as much. Westwood pointed out a smaller tree on the other side of the river. What do you see on those roots? Alan could make out what looked like mushrooms and barnacles attached to the roots. He looked back at the first tree. It doesn't have anything on the roots. Why? asked Westwood. This was Westwood the professor talking, not the hunter. Alan felt like he was back in college. Because something eats them on this side? Maybe, but why not that side? You saw how the animals could cross over the arches. Alan looked at the root over. Is there something in the water on that side that's scraping them off? It was a wild guess. Yep, river crabs. They didn't congregate in pools like that one. They climb up onto shore at night and scavenge. They haven't gotten their fill from the river. That sounds positively delightful. Alan checked the seat of his new pants and backed away from the railing. I have something for you. Westwood reached into his bag and pulled out a revolver. I'll show you how to use a rifle at Grassy Bend. For now, I want you to carry this. Alan stared at the gun. I'm just a reporter. I don't know if... Out here, you're food. These animals don't care about journalistic objectivity. He placed a gun in Alan's hand. We'll do target practice later. For now, just remember that my greatest threat out there is most likely you with a gun. So please only shoot at something when you see what you're shooting at. Alan rubbed his own left shoulder. I've been shot more times by accident than on purpose, so please watch it. Westwood also gave Alan a side holster to place the gun into. Alan strapped it to his waist. It made him feel like a boy playing dress-up. He'd never been fascinated or frightened by guns any more than he was with medieval weapons or wooden clubs. They were something that people in other lines of work used, usually in anachronistic civilizations. His tools were a camera and text input. Looking at the dark green jungle before him and thinking about what lay out there, he felt a little better knowing the gun was at his side. He still planned to cower when he saw brush birds or came near horrific monster crabs, but at least he had options while he cowered. As the boat journey continued, Westwood tried to give Alan a primer on the local flora and fauna and how it roughly correlated to terrestrial life. Although Alan had never been to Earth, its life forms were used as a kind of Rosetta Stone to understand life elsewhere. Also, because of colonization, Earth life forms were the most abundant ones in the galaxy. Their genetic engineering, several thousand worlds were even inhabited by forms of life that had gone extinct millions of years ago. On Vineland, the brushbirds were analogous to how mammals had come to be one of the most widespread creatures on the planet. Brushbirds ranging from chicken size to species as tall as giraffes had filled in different niches similar to how birds after the dinosaurs had done. In fact, there was a number of brushbird species that had earth analogs that were strikingly similar. The two birds that weren't really birds Alan saw pulling the carriage were close in size to the terror birds that went extinct when man came on the scene in prehistoric times. Alan secretly wondered if it was some kind of cosmic reincarnation so they could have their vengeance. Westwood's advice about plant and insect-like creatures was simple. Don't touch or get bitten by anything. 
Smythe explained a variety of different plants that could kill and how to stay clear of the insects. Lunch that day was interrupted by one of the wonders of Vineland as an iridescent rainbow of color fluttered overhead and across the valley. It was made of millions of creatures that resembled large butterflies flying in a chain that stretched almost a mile long. Even Smythe stopped what he was doing to watch. It was a sight even a local never tired of. Alan moved to the other side of the deck to see it on the other side. The rainbow moved across the treetops and seemed to move almost like a pulse of sparkling light. It reached the top of the hill, then vanished like a train over the horizon. Alan watched in wonder. It was such a pretty thing to see. They can strip the flesh off your bones in ten seconds flat, said Westwood. That's not true, said Smythe. Alan was relieved to hear that Westwood was only jesting. Smythe continued, He'll just sting you to death. Alan was not relieved. Smythe walked over to offer Alan advice. Just don't move, that's the trick. I've been in the middle of a swarm before, it's a beautiful thing, just don't move an inch. Patrick and I were caught off guard once in a field where they would get their pollen. He saw them first, called out to me to remain still, and we did for what felt like an hour. It was really just a few minutes. I was terrified for him. He was only eleven at the time, but he had the biggest smile on his face. He knew they were deadly if you moved. He just stood there, smiled. I couldn't help it. Finally, when they passed, we had a big laugh. My wife was mortified. She just didn't understand. Smythe leaned on the railing. She still doesn't. Patrick is always chasing after adventure. His voice trailed off as he looked wistfully over the water. Chapter 10 As dusk approached, they came across a keelboat coming down in the opposite direction. The steamboat captain slowed down and dropped anchor so they could exchange news. There were three men on the other boat. A man wearing a captain's hat came aboard at Smythe's request. He introduced him to Westwood and Allen. This is Tom Jackson. He runs several of the keelboats and barges between Vineport and Grassy Bend. Westwood and Allen shook his hand. I got good news and iffy news, Smythe, said Jackson. The iffy part is that your son and the others are still missing. The good news is the other four came back and said when they last saw him, he was alive. Smythe touched his forehead in relief. What else did they have to say? They think they may have found its track. More of the three toes. They followed it back to the upper ridge on foot. That's when the four decided to come back. It was more adventure than they could handle. Patrick and Jericho stayed on. Patrick, because he's, you know, Patrick, and Jericho on account of his sister being one of the first to go missing. Did they have anything to report about any of the other missing people? Asked Smythe. No sign of them. Other than the blood on the sites where they went missing, there's still nothing else to be found. It looks bad. Westwood doubted how long a carcass could lay around with river crabs nearby, but he kept his thoughts to himself. Smythe quietly mentioned the trouble they had getting a crew for the journey downriver. Huh. I don't know many river folks who are spooked. That's odd. Well, if you need a skiff, just give me a holler. Jackson hopped back onto his boat and waved to them as they steamed off. That night they ate a fish dinner prepared by one of the deckhands and sat on the aft deck and watched the sun settle into the glowing purple horizon. Vineland's largest moon, Angel, visible during most of the day, became the brightest spot and reflected a yellow-orange light. Like all undeveloped worlds, the stars shone intensely, 
brightly from the lack of light pollution. The Milky Way was the brightest crescent band through the sky. It was a beautiful sight to Alan. He even refused to let the squawking of brush birds in the surrounding jungle disturb him. As a precautionary measure, the captain urged him to stay under the canopy, lest he become a nighttime meal for something else. After dinner, the captain and the deckhand stood watch in the pilot house while Smythe, Alan, and Westwood retired to the bunks located aft. Alan went to sleep staring at one of the moons through the porthole. Usually, when Alan went to other worlds, even frontier ones and war zones, he stayed in a hotel. Even a partially shelled-out hotel, or one suspended from a giant gas balloon, offered a kind of calming normalcy. The riverboat was starting to give him that. He just drifted off to sleep. When the explosion knocked him out of his bunk, he hit the floor and banged his head against the bulkhead. The cabin was filled with smoke and in total disarray. Westwood was already standing with his rifle in hand. Water began gushing through a crack in the side of the cabin, and the far end was already knee-high. Westwood tossed his rifle to a still-stunned Allen and began pulling apart a pile of bunks and crates that had fallen on top of Smythe. He reached down into the foaming water and yanked the dazed Smythe free. He turned to Allen and shouted something, but he couldn't understand the words because his ears were still ringing. The boat began to take a dramatic list. Frustrated with Alan's inaction, Westwood thrust the disoriented Smythe into his hands and took back his rifle. He pushed the two of them through an open door and onto the aft deck. Alan struggled to keep his balance as the ship began to tilt starboard and the water kept rushing. Westwood searched for the lifeboat, but it was gone. He pulled Alan and Smythe to the driest part of the deck and motioned for him to hold on to one of the struts that held up the canopy. He then climbed along the side of the vessel toward the pilot house. The water was rising and the boat was lost. Alan looked out past the river. The shore was 20 yards away. He saw a clearing where they could climb ashore if they swam to it. Parts of the steamboat already bobbed in the waves near there. Alan looked at the rising waters and knew he just had minutes before the entire vessel went under. Smythe seemed a little more alert, but blood was pouring down a wound from his scalp. No time to spare. No time to spare, Alan put Smythe into a lifeguard's grip and pushed off for shore. He couldn't wait for Westwood to make it back. Using his legs and free hand to swim, he struggled to keep Smythe afloat. The twenty yards began to look impossibly far away when his head was just inches above the water. He kept kicking and pulling at the water. Occasionally, his feet would hit something. He tried not to think about what. He pushed and kicked and tried to grab a breath of air with every stroke. Half the time, he got mouthfuls of brackish water. Finally, he reached the smooth roots of a tree at the shoreline. Alan pulled himself several feet up, making sure to keep hold of Smythe, lest he go under. He dragged Smythe up by the arm and over the small cliff. Fire shot through his shoulder as he pulled the older man. He felt like his arms were going to come out of their sockets. Alan rolled over and looked back at the sinking ship. Westwood was waving frantically at him. Good lord, thought Alan. Can't the man swim? Alan stood up to try to understand what Westwood was yelling at him through the dim light and ringing of his ears. Couldn't make any sense of it. Did he have to go back and get him? Alan leaned Smythe up against the tree, then quickly took off his shoes. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw Westwood pull out a rifle and aim it at him. For God's sake, had he gone mad? Westwood fired off a round, and Alan could hear it crack above the ringing. He felt a spray of blood on his neck and began to stumble backwards. Alan began to hyperventilate. His foot stepped on something hard. Alan, jerking his body around, saw a river crab with a cracked shell flinging its pincers about like mad. Alan touched his neck to 
where he thought he'd been shot. His fingers came back with a greenish goo. His relief that the greatest hunter in the galaxy wasn't trying to kill him was doused by the fact that he could see a dozen more river crabs making their way towards Smythe and him. The clacking of their pegs made a sickening insect noise as they approached. Alan remembered his gun. His hand went to his waist to the holster. There was nothing there. Damn! He'd taken it off before he went to sleep. He looked around the ground for anything to use as a weapon. Nothing. Bang, bang! From the top of the pilot house of the almost completely sunken boat, Westwood let loose another two rounds at crabs as they got closer. They seemed to scatter for a moment. Westwood let out another three rounds, then dived into the water. Alan was regretting leaving the sinking boat. Two crabs began pulling themselves up along the same roots he had just pulled Smythe up. Alan pulled the man away from the edge. Swimming furiously, Westwood was halfway between the wreck and the shore. He rolled onto his back and shot another round from the water, managing to knock one of the crabs off the edge. Alan kicked the other one at the top of the rise, as its pincers were still holding onto the root. Westwood reached the shore and jabbed his gun into where the fallen crab's face sort of was, and fired. Alan reached out and helped Westwood up. Westwood immediately fired off two more rounds at approaching crabs along the riverbank. Alan noticed that he was aiming for a specific spot right between the pincers and near the eye stalks. He suspected anywhere else wouldn't have much effect. Westwood relaxed the gun for a moment to make sure Smythe and Alan were okay. He pulled the ship's fire axe from his belt and handed it to Alan. Aim for the eye stalks and the pincers. Alan took the axe and turned around to see more than a dozen river crabs coming from the tree line. The explosion must have been a dinner bell. Westwood began picking them off in the thickest patch. Alan swung the axe, had one on his left, and heard a loud crack as the blade snapped off a pincer. He swung again and was covered in green goo. He kept swinging at anything that moved, trying to keep a safe distance from Westwood and Smythe. Westwood kept firing at the river crabs on the right flank. Sometimes the rounds stopped them cold, other times they kept coming. He looked over his shoulder periodically to make sure that Alan and Smythe hadn't been attacked. An ambitious crab tried to climb around the tree that Smythe was leaning against. Westwood fired around as its pincier came close to the man's neck and it came clean off. At the spray of green blood, Smythe jerked alert and tried to stand up, but he collapsed against the tree. Westwood kept hacking away. His body was beginning to get coated in crab fluid. He decided to advance forward instead of waiting for the crabs to get close. He took a step and tripped on part of a bloody piece of crab shell. He tried to regain his balance, but the axe slipped from his grasp. The blood was now seeping into his eyes, stinging and making it difficult to see. Blindly, he reached for the axe handle. He frantically patted the hands around the blood-soaked grass. He couldn't hear the clack of crab legs as they got closer. Finally, he found it and struggled to his feet began swinging away at anything that clicked or moved. Striking with all of his force, Alan struck at an advancing crab as he felt it brush his leg. He kept swinging, waiting to hear the sound of a shell crack. Blood kept spraying as he pummeled it. Alan kicked out with his right foot and struck a shell, then struck it with the axe. He kicked again and hit the shell again, then struck again and again. Somewhere in the background, he noticed that Westwood had stopped firing his rifle. Alan took another blind lunge with his axe and wiped the dark blood from his eyes. Westwood was standing over Smythe protectively amid a sea of dead crab carcasses. He was staring at Alan with what might be considered a surprise expression by his standards. Alan looked at the pile of dead river crabs around him. A few twitched, but none of them moved. A few yards away, a metal object caught the moonlight. 
the fire axe. That was when he noticed the handle felt different than it should. He turned to look at the crab arm he'd been holding. Green blood was still dripping from it. At his feet was a twitching river crab missing its pincers and one of its legs. Behind him were several more crab corpses that he'd beaten to death with a leg after he lost the axe. Westwood picked up the axe and took the crab arm from Alan. And stick to this for now, he said, handing the axe back to Alan. They walked over to Smythe to check on him. Out in the river, only the flagpole remained of the steamboat. Vineland's green flag sunk beneath the current. Westwood shrugged at the wreck. I tried to get to the captain and the deckhands, but they were dead as soon as the blast hit. I only counted two bodies. Maybe the other deckhand made it ashore. Now what? asked Alan. Westwood kicked the crab shell with his foot. I think we should get out of here before the real feast begins. Westwood leaned down to help Smythe up. Alan noticed that Westwood had managed to salvage his pack from the boat before it went under. A piece of metal wedged into a thick root caught his eye from a few feet offshore. Alan jumped in the water to pull it free. Westwood shouted, For God's sakes, Alan, do you have a death wish? Hold on! Alan pulled himself up on the root and yanked the metal plate free. He swam back to the shore and Westwood pulled him up. Alan pointed to the metal. It was a piece of iron casing from the boiler. There was a puncture in it. Westwood stuck his finger in the hole. It was two inches across and looked like a huge bullet hole. Smooth edges instead of ragged ones. Damn. This hole's on the wrong side. Looks like something blew a hole from the outside to the boiler. That explains the missing lifeboat and deckhand. Were we fired on from the shore? Asked Alan. Not likely. This looks like a plastic explosive. A high-powered one. No bigger than a small coin. I can't imagine that would be allowed here, said Alan. I'm sure it's not. I'll ask Smythe when he comes around, but for now we gotta get some distance from here. Grendel's Shadow is available on Amazon for 99 cents. Buy it on your desktop or your Kindle. You can also use the Kindle app. Available on the iPad as well as all major phones, including iPhones, Blackberries, Windows 7, and Android. You can also look for it on the Nook Store and Apple's iBooks. If you'd like to purchase this audiobook in its entirety without interruption, or a physical copy of Grendel's Shadow, head to andrewmain.com books. This presentation has been read by Justin Robert Young. <laughs>